0: Well, good day, and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Pod Medic, and uh, we've got a really interesting episode for you tonight. Kind of something that was asked for um, on demand, and we uh, went to our clinical expert, Joe Holly, tonight to uh, kind of bring in some some expertise of uh, some some training and things that he discovered. Um, available for us and we're going to kind of talk about that before we can get into what that clinical topic is though we have to go right to my co-host Sam Bradley and uh, Sam how are you doing tonight
1: I'm good and you know this time of year in Colorado is amazing because we're still seeing turning of the trees and we'll be getting some snow very soon and it's not hot which makes me very happy Um, and we got Dr. Joe our things in Memphis down there Joe
2: uh, well, the weather's been uh, a little rainy, but otherwise uh, beautiful, and uh, we'll be actually moving to the other end of the state uh, for the rest of the week to do a uh, big uh, research and data gathering uh, thing for, um, on uh, supragautic airways in uh, CPR. So hopefully some updated data from our study we did about three years ago coming up in the next few weeks.
1: Excellent. Well, we sure want to hear about that when when you're done with it. Um, but tonight, we have a clinical topic that kind of came out of the Ukraine issue, which is the potential for n- nuclear disaster there in some form or another. And and you've actually created a class on that. So we'd love to hear what you have to say about it. So I'm just going to throw it back at you,
2: Joe, and go for it. Well, thanks. Uh, so this, this was really you know, meant to be sort of down and dirty, uh, just-in-time training for um, health care providers and emergency responders who potentially might be uh, dealing with a uh, a nuclear catastrophe, particularly related to the current tensions in Ukraine, uh, and uh, the concerns over the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And there were a few points here that I thought were worth making folks aware of obviously this is a very unique setting for uh radiation Uh, we we've talked about this some you know for weapons of mass destruction kind of stuff and all that but um there's just some things about tactical nuclear weapons and and battlefield use of nuclear weapons that are a bit different than some of our training we've had before so you know, uh, just to touch on a couple of things here. Clearly, the the injuries from nuclear weapons in a in a tactical environment are um, definitely some radiation injuries, particularly related to the the initial gamma pulsation that occurs at detonation. But really, the the uh, uh, Overlying and overwhelming often associated issues are the traumatic injuries and the thermal burns that are likely to occur in that setting. Uh, and you know just to sort of keep things uh, in perspective, the, the the chances of significant um, radiation exposure and particularly subsequent radiation injury. Uh, are a lot more likely to result from radioactive fallout, um, which obviously can travel a great distance and is, uh, you know, some extent dependent upon the weather and that sort of thing. So, you know, for for folks that might be exposed to a tactical nuclear attack, if they are uh, following the basic principles of time, distance, and shielding, um, you know, they they are likely to uh, not have overwhelming uh, immediate radiation injury, uh, but much more likely to have uh, thermal injury or traumatic injury. Uh, so just something to, to keep in mind. Again, it's not that it's not a threat. It's just um, sort of keeping it in perspective that the, um, the, the radiation threat uh maybe is a little more subacute than some of the other stuff that's going on. Um, Sam, did you want to say something particular about time, distance, and shielding there?
1: Yeah, and Jamie had that same question because maybe not everybody understands that.
2: Uh, well, sure. So, uh, you know, w- what I really like about time, distance, and shielding uh, is it's pretty much the same approach you take to an infectious disease pandemic uh, meaning you, you try to shorten the amount of time that you are exposed to radiation uh, by uh, quickly getting away from the, the site, <laughs> as it were, uh, or at least doing what you can to limit the amount of time you're being exposed. So if we talk about things like radioactive fallout and that sort of stuff, limiting the amount of time that you're exposed to fallout will greatly greatly reduce your uh, radiation exposure uh, distance is pretty straightforward the further away from it you are the better uh, and shielding just means anything that is between you and the source of radiation uh, or infectious disease that can reduce the amount of uh, exposure that you get so Related specifically to uh, nuclear shielding, you know, uh, or fallout and that sort of stuff, just sort of being inside in many cases is enough to really reduce the amount of radiation that you get. But from a more acute standpoint, uh, particularly, you know, gamma and beta radiation, um, then shielding of some sort, whether that's uh, thick walls or earth or lead, or many of the other things that we're more familiar with, as far as uh, shielding for uh, active radiation uh, is uh, always an opportunity as well.
1: Joe, can, you know, just for those that don't understand this either, can you go over the different types of radiation and what effect they may have?
2: Uh, they do vary quite a bit, and I, I need to actually refresh myself on those a little bit. There's, there's a uh, uh, alpha, beta, and gamma uh, radiation, uh, and they vary in their um, how far they can travel, uh, how uh, how well they penetrate, uh, you know, through shielding and that sort of stuff. Um, so, for example, um, the the alpha radiation. Uh, is the, the kind of stuff that really is related to a lot of naturally occurring radioactive um, uh, materials that are in the Earth that we're already familiar with. Um, the, the beta radiation is sort of cosmic radiation and that sort of stuff that... Um, um it's how we do things like carbon 14 dating and that kind of thing um there's uh, uh electromagnetic radiation like x-rays and gamma rays that um can be used in in a way that is beneficial obviously radioactive uh, sorry radiation therapy for uh treatment and that kind of stuff but the um, You know, they they vary quite a bit um, in in how far they can travel. So, for example, the alpha radiation does not tend to travel very far. Um, Beta particles tend to go a little bit further. Uh, Both of those are fairly responsive to shielding and that kind of stuff. But things like gamma radiation and x radiation uh, can penetrate through the body, uh, they're, they're, you know, not as responsive to shielding and distance and all that sort of stuff. So th- they they vary quite a bit just based on the, you know, the type of radiation that's going on and the effects of time, distance, and shielding on those types of radiation.
1: Jamie, you just threw up a link. What is that about?
0: Uh, it's the Environmental Protection Agency uh, for the United States has a uh, basic radiation basics page um, that goes over these, and I'll actually link to those in the show notes. That page uh, to make sure that folks have access to that information.
2: Well, oh, that'd be great. Thanks, Jamie. I, I always get those confused, and they're they're hard to to keep keep straight <laughs> as far as which ones do do which particular kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's, there's just so much to know about this. So, you know, looking at a wartime situation, what kind of radiation is most likely to be dispersed to, say, Ukraine?
2: Well, uh, you know, I think that's part of the challenge. There, there tends to be a lot of uh, gamma radiation uh, released. And, and I think one of the things that struck me as... Um, concerning to some extent was um, most of the radiation detection meters that folks are used to, for for lack of a better word, or at least more familiar with, are designed really to be utilized in an environment where um, there is uh, fallout, for example, or um, you're working in an environment where radioactive materials may be present. And the issue in a a military-type use of a a radiation uh, device is that almost all of those uh, dosimeters will be saturated and cannot read those levels of radiation they're simply too high and so they will mislead you into thinking that the radiation doses are not nearly as high as you think they are or or they're not nearly as high as they are and therefore can uh, lead people down a wrong path Uh, i I i recall in the 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 docudrama there on Chernobyl, you know, talking about the folks' um, radiation badges, you know, we're all uh, reading a certain amount of uh, radiation, and the thought was, well, that's, you know, that's a lot, but that's not too bad, and and then them coming to realize uh, that those badges were actually saturated, and the real levels of radiation were many-fold more uh, intense than what they uh, were able to read on those gauges, so... It, it's, it's just sort of making it clear that we need to be careful that we're using the right kind of radiation detector for that environment and that many of the radiation detectors um, that folks have experience with are designed for much lower levels of radiation uh, and you really need to make certain that you're using an ion chamber detector device. Um, because that's the, that, that's the device design that will not be saturated by the excessively high levels of radiation that are likely to be present after a, a nuclear uh, bomb type event.
0: Wow. Well, that's good to know. Jamie, questions? no i just i 'm fascinated by that, and that just you know means that the the detectors you 're using in your hospital setting to keep track of what 's going on in your x ray suite and things like that is not going to be useful for you. In a nuclear uh, nuclear attack situation. And so uh, hopefully, you know, for people that are thinking about this in reference to Ukraine specifically, um, that's going to necessitate them to make sure they have access to military grade nuclear radiation detectors. Then I guess, right, Joe?
2: Yeah, no question about it. Or, or at least if you're if you're utilizing, uh, you know, hospital based uh dosimeters and that kind of thing to to understand that they may uh, you know once they sort of reach their maximum level that you know anything beyond that might be you know one percent higher than what it can read or it might be a thousand percent higher than what it can read and and you simply don't know how much higher it is. So um, the, those detectors become of very limited usefulness when they near their, uh, radiation saturation levels.
1: Wow. So, Joe, when you're talking about fallout, I'm going back to the 60s. <laughs> and fallout shelters and, and concerns with nukes then. Um, you know, thinking about the Ukrainian population, is there any way of protecting yourself after a nuclear event? And if they're not you know, I, I really doubt that they have nuclear shelters. Um, what do they do?
2: Well, that's a great point, Sam. So uh, I, I would also doubt that they have significant uh, nuclear-based shelters. But, you know, any, any amount of material between you and the radiation is beneficial. So, um, you know, heavy walls on, um, on buildings, concrete walls, et cetera, Certainly, uh, you know, subway uh, places that are um, subterranean are very beneficial, uh, very protective uh, in an awful lot of ways. But, you know, I, I think part of what the real challenge uh, will be in in the uh, hopefully um, extremely unlikely case that a nuclear device is utilized there will be the uh, the real challenge in dealing with the thermal burn injuries and the traumatic injuries, really more so than the radiation injuries, at least acutely. Um, we'll talk about some real basic uh, triage techniques for radiation injuries, um, but I think if you um, if you think about the ability of Uh, a medical care system to respond to a large-scale quote-unquote tactical nuclear attack that generates lots and lots of um, injuries uh, that the majority of those injuries are going to be, maybe not majority, but a large number of those injuries are going to be thermal burns and otherwise significant trauma from falls, building collapses, all that sort of stuff. And that the the challenge there is the overwhelming amount of resources required to manage patients with significant thermal burns um, and um, uh, trauma. In addition to potential radiation exposure, there are some medications that can um, uh, help to uh, offset the potential damage from radiation that, you know, also need to be administered. But, but in the fairly short term, um, for many of those patients, the real life threats are likely to be thermal burns and trauma otherwise um, layered on top of, um, you know, a radiation exposure incident.
1: Well, this may seem like a silly question, but when first responders are dealing with something like this, is there any concern that any nuclear incident might affect them in any way?
2: I think that's a definite possibility. As a matter of fact, there's there's a couple of different ways to sort of approach this from a radiation standpoint. And because the number of Um, affected uh, people in a a nuclear attack are likely to be very large, and the number, uh, the ability of responders to adequately ascertain the level of radiation threat based on the issues we were just talking about, we don't have the right detectors, and, you know, there's thousands of injured folks and there's hundreds of healthcare care providers that some really rapid ways to make some assessments uh, clinically on patients who have potentially a significant radiation exposure is to just simply ask how long after the radiation exposure event, did you start having GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea? And if the answer to that is like less than an hour, then the majority of those patients probably fall in an expectant category and are unlikely to be salvageable. Uh, And that if, if it's been... Many hours, more than four or six hours, then those patients may well have a much better chance of survival. Uh, particularly if um, you know uh, uh, potassium iodide and you know some of these, uh, epineupogen and some of these kind of meds uh, can be potentially given to them to um, counteract, if you were, uh, the uh, effect of. Uh, some of the radiation based injuries but but I think the other thing that we have to think about is in a scenario like that the idea of emergency responders attempting to enter an area that is highly contaminated with uh, uh, radiation is is folly honestly and that the uh, the 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 responders in many cases are going to simply have to stay in a safe area and wait for the self-triage of those who are able to get themselves out of that environment and to some place where they can get help. And if they're not able to do that, then that's likely to be how that plays out.
1: Ouch. Jamie you had a
0: comment on that well yeah I mean that's just a you know the the, the thought process behind that kind of triage of um, you know how long did it take you to have GI symptoms following the explosion and um, making that determination as part of your triaging um, and then follow that up with don't go in um, wait and let the walking wounded come to you and but as you and then triage them and under that, um, just really, un, really points out just the devastating nature of use of one of these weapons and why they are so, so. Um, I don't even mean, frowned upon is not even the right word. Um, it, it is you know the anathema of of civilized culture to use these types of weapons, which is why they've they've been so controlled for so long.
1: Yeah, I would say cruel, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so, so Joe, speaking of triage, is there any other triage issues? They would obviously take care of the immediate needs of trauma and burns. But what are the—you're what? You're almost saying, okay, these people are going to die. But, you know, what are those long-term effects—
2: well, uh, you know, clearly, the, you're right, the, the outlook here is fairly bleak, particularly if you are uh, rapidly symptomatic after exposure to one of these incidents. Um, plus the fact that if you've, even if you've gotten a massive radiation uh, dose, you're likely to have been close enough to also get significant thermal burns and um uh, other trauma from the building collapsing around you and all that sort of stuff so um, you know I, I think from a a responder standpoint uh, a a very harsh triage situation uh, and one that's going to be uh, very challenging for for most folks to tolerate um, on on many many levels and um, you know, the, the radiation longer-term issue has to do with um, the, the damage to tissues. Uh, the, the tissues that seem to be most sensitive um, are those that are replaced very quickly, uh, that being the lining of the GI tract. Uh, and then in many cases, um, uh, you know, sort of mucous membranes and uh, neurological Tissues, um, so you know if, if you get symptomatic fairly early, that means your radiation dosing was quite high, and the chances of you having significant um, bone marrow suppression um, and uh, on the in the longer term um, issues with uh, the ability to uh, uh, fight off infection, um, apart from you know direct. Uh, injury to tissues from the breakdown of uh, RNA and DNA and all the other kind of stuff. And then um, significantly increased risk of cancers and uh, issues related to damage to um, the, the genetic parts of the cell. So, you know, uh, things like uh, thyroid cancers, uh, you know, a lot of this is related to um, the fallout issue, where you know the radiation again just you know lands on the roof and the ground, and the dust is everywhere, and all of it's radioactive, and you inhale a bunch of it, um, which is a significantly higher uh, risk to your um, your tissues than if it uh, if you're exposed to it from the you know from the outside. So it, it's a matter of Making certain that you can protect yourself as much as you can, you can reduce your further exposure, and then, you know, if available, there are some medications that can be beneficial to um, get the bone marrow to start producing um, uh, red and white blood cells again. Uh, as well as uh, preventative stuff like potassium iodide and things like that that will protect the uh, the thyroid from uh, cancer down the road as well.
1: Well, it's nice to know something could be done. Uh, Jamie made a comment why the forest around Chernobyl is so toxic, and it seems like that goes on for hundreds of years, that you can't reclaim that land. I mean, that's that's what
0: nukes do right yeah it, it, and it's it's something that i think at least in that respect the the ukrainians have a very deep understanding of that type of disaster because it happened in their territory um back when you know when it was part of the soviet union that that they they understand the long-term nature of how this stays with a a, a community and an area for an extended period of time.
1: Yeah, I remember that when we were there in 2000, we were only about 90 miles away from Chernobyl in Kiev, and and there there was a little bit of something going on there. It scared the hell out of us. It's like, are we far enough away? I don't know. It's, It's pretty scary. So... I just think about those first responders and the masses of people they're going to have to try to treat, triage and treat, but they seem so limited in what they're able to do.
2: Well, I I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, it, it's a phenomenally psychologically traumatic event uh, on top of uh, an overwhelming number of casualties with a very wide variety of um, illnesses, injuries, you know, burns, et cetera, all of which are intensely (laughs) resource-heavy. So a lot of people to take care of one person with pretty substantial, you know, thermal burns, um, all all the while trying to do that in an environment where you uh, reduce the radiation exposure of the patient uh, as well as ensuring that the caretakers aren't inadvertently uh, exposed to nuclear fallout, et cetera. Obviously, things like gamma rays are not going to stay around. You know? I mean, you either get exposed to that or you don't, but the, the, the fallout, which will occur for a very long time and will be very difficult to uh, very easily ascertain without ongoing radiation monitoring and that sort of stuff, just really makes it a, a very difficult environment to try to take care of really sick patients.
1: So is there any kind of PPE that first responders can use that is useful to protect them?
2: Well, it depends on the kind of radiation that you're talking about. So, you know, for, for the majority of folks who are not directly affected by the blast uh, and the radiation, uh, that is part of that blast, those folks are a lot more likely to be exposed to um, fallout-type radiation. And so, you know, any, anything that keeps the ash and soot and dust and all that sort of stuff that's full of radioactivity off of your skin and prevents you from inhaling it or ingesting it will... Uh, be beneficial to you. Obviously, that means, you know, walking around in a level A suit all the time, and and uh, <laughs> that's not really very realistic, uh, or staying inside all the time uh, uh, so that you don't uh, get exposed to anything and attempting to, you know, filter the air that you breathe and ensure that any food that you take in does not contain, you know, radioactivity in it and all that sort of stuff. So, it, the logistics behind doing that are uh, intensely complicated and very difficult to do for a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, and I, I rather doubt that they have that level of protection available for everybody that would need to respond. Jamie, I'm kind of speechless. I'm going to throw it back to you.
0: No, uh, this is a a chilling topic, uh, to say the least, and it's... Um, something that probably hasn't been discussed in our setting for maybe too long. Maybe we need to keep bringing this up so that people are aware of how horrific these types of situations can be to an entire population of an area. Um, And and I, I, I hope that this is just something we're doing as a preventative measure to provide people some education And that's it, that it's not going to be put to use because I can only imagine what um, that could mean for not just the community, but the responders and the medical staffs of all the all the hospitals and facilities that would have to take on this huge number of patients with with serious, complicated injuries and complicated um, prospects for their recovery Um, and and. That's why this kind of training is important, and, and we come back to training all the time here because of our affiliation with Paragon Medical Education Group. Um, Joe, you know, this is, one of those, this is one of those disasters where you don't have experienced people <laughs> on your staff. Yeah, well, Thank goodness, never... right? Um, but you do have the opportunity to, to bring just about every other kind of experience and disaster response to bear when people need it for a specific training event.
2: Yeah, we're always happy to talk to folks. Uh, you know, the, the this is a very grim subject, and uh, training for this is uh, challenging, to say the least. But we're always happy to address those issues, and we, we encourage folks to give us a call. Uh, they can find us on the web at Paragon Medical Group or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group, or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast. Sam, where can folks find you?
1: Well, under the table right now, this this is some scary stuff. I hope we never have to deal with this. But in the meantime, I'll be on social media under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 in our wonderful Facebook group and certainly on the DisasterPodcast.com website.
0: Jamie? And you can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations. So please friend or follow me or look me up over there. And um, always over at disasterpodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show using the links right there below the audio player at the top of the page for each episode. So um, whether you have an iOS or an Android device, just click on the link that's applying to your device or your favorite podcast mobile application and it often is a one-click process to subscribe so go ahead and do that so you don't miss any of our future episodes sam good stuff um i'm glad we were able to get this top topic in um it was one of those things that was discussed and and requested in a past episode and hopefully um this can be translated and 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 put to use by those that are going to be working with the ukrainian healthcare professionals that have asked for this kind of thing
1: yes we can absolutely do that i don't know exactly what joe's plans are but we have a lot of partner agencies over there and, and this would be great material for them so thank you very much joe Um, We appreciate your expertise in this area. As far as I'm concerned, I'm just too gobsmacked to come up with much other than, in general, be prepared as much as you possibly can, but there's just some things you can't be that prepared for.